Listen up, it's the Speakeasy with Annie Madden and Carla Trelaw. Conversations in the margins. A comfortable space for uncomfortable topics. And we're off. <laughs> Hi there, Carla. <laughs> we're back again for another yes. round in the Speakeasy. And the, today, very excitingly, we're getting into yeah. the spirit of the US presidential election, huh? So, we're going um, global, baby. We are, that very <laughs> unique beast that that, yes. that process is. But um, in that regard, our guest today is Jake Agliata, who is um, coming at us all the way from Philadelphia in the US. Um, and Jake is the Policy and Communications Officer at the International Network of People Who Use Drugs, which is better known as Input. And yep. that's a role he started in 2019. But he's actually been a passionate advocate for ending uh, the criminalisation of drugs since around 2011. And prior to Input, um, he was the Global Program Coordinator for Students for Sensible Drug Policy in the US, which is a role that he... Um, uh, that included, excuse me, uh, representing SSDP at the United Nations. Mm-hmm. So Jake, um, in sort of academic terms, has a MA in human rights from the Central European University and a BA in international studies from Dickinson's College in Philadelphia. And a big welcome to you, Jake, to the speaker. Hello, Jake. Welcome. Hello. Thank you for both of me. For, or both of you, uh, thank you to both of you for having me on tonight. <laughs> do, yep, it's a little bit late here, but I am uh, excited to be talking to you both. Thank you very much for having me on. No worries. It's Wonderful to have you here. Um, yes, thank you. So, okay. so um, yeah, you mentioned yeah. um, students for sensible drug policy in the U.S. How did you come to be involved in that and and what's it like being a young political activist in the US at at that time you were doing that? Mm -hmm. Yeah, so I got involved with SSDP first in 2011 when I was a freshman at Dickinson College um, in Pennsylvania. And it was at a time in my life where I was involved with a lot of different student organizations, student groups, trying to kind of find my niche, not really kind of committing to one thing or another yet. and also, I was at a time in my life where, like many other college students, I really enjoyed smoking marijuana and, you know, experimenting with other drugs with friends. And, um, you know, we would always kind of get together. And especially about marijuana legalization, we would talk all the time about how ridiculous it is that not just pot is legal, but all the other repercussions of that. Um, the fact that uh, a pot conviction or any drug conviction can really ruin someone's life, can kick them out of yeah. college. And... What really kind of got me involved and was the big impetus was we had several friends um, in our little friend group in college who had actually gotten expelled or suspended simply for smoking marijuana. Um, wow. wow. And it was ridiculous because in some cases, these these friends were caught with nothing more than you know half a gram on them mm. um, or maybe a little bowl. In one case, I had a friend who the campus police had actually just been walking by her car and they found a little marijuana nug in the back seat. And so they knocked on her dorm room at like three in the morning and was like demanding her explain like what it was, where she got it, all this stuff. I mean, you know, we're sitting here, we're 19 years old, we're just starting it out in the world and people are are telling us about how being at this age, you get more responsibility and trust, but we didn't feel like it. We felt like we were being treated like kids still. Um, And and especially, you know, for something like marijuana. So that was a lot of the motivation for getting started into the movement. Um, 
And so we formed a chapter of SSDP at my school. And um, from there on, we kind of started as just more of a discussion group. We kind of talked a lot about, um, you know, just what we were talking about before, about why we believe drugs should be legalized and why we believe the war on drugs has been such a detriment to not just the U.S., but the world. And that morphed into a desire to do advocacy, to take action, to actually do something rather than just kind of sit around and talk about it. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, that led us to get involved with campus-based drug policy reform. So we really started off by trying to first lessen penalties for marijuana um, convictions on campus. We tried to reason that it shouldn't, at the very least, be any more severe than underage drinking, which was basically a slap on the wrist at my school. Um, <laughs> and right, you know, it, it's kind of like, and, and that's the kind of thing too, when you're a college kid, you're 18, 19, people say, well, you know, kids drink all the time and they get into trouble, they hurt yeah. themselves, um, things happen at parties. And we're here looking around this and we're saying the things that people are brushing off with alcohol are actually quite severe when you yeah. look at yeah. A lot of the harms people get into with alcohol versus everyone I knew that was smoking marijuana was just um, getting oh. stoned and spending too much money at Seven Eleven and playing video games, and you know it, it was like, oh wow. Um, so you know, it's, it's always you see these contradictions kind of keep arising and arising and arising. And I think the the more I went throughout my college career, and the more serious I got about my studies. I was studying international relations and starting to see how the dots got connected on the global scale with drug prohibition. And um, once that started to click, I, I realized that this is what I want to really commit myself to. This is such a uh, just a huge issue that affects so many people so deeply, the, the issue being the criminalization of drugs. And yeah. it, it's something that is so stigmatized to even talk about in a context. And I felt very lucky to be in a position where I could talk about it and I could lead discussions with other people to talk about it. And I, you know, by the time I ended college, I was like, I want to do this forever. Um, <laughs> and so, uh, <laughs> um, I said, yeah, then after college, I got a job with SSDP International in, in the Washington, D.C. office to do, um, uh, a lot of that, um, you know, national level coordinating, but also international coordinating too. And I joined SSDP at a, a very critical time because they were just kind of in a limbo period with their own international program. And uh, I happened to have, you know, the international studies BA. Oh, so nice. yeah, yeah. So it was really just a perfect, perfect marriage at the time. Um, and, you know, I, I got that job and I really never looked back from there. And it's been yeah. amazing to be involved since. Yeah. Nice trajectory there, yeah. blending it all the, the educational, the personal, the, the political. Yeah, mm-hmm. nice. Yeah, it's great when that happens and when that can happen for people. So, Jay, you know, you've you kind of touched on the global stuff, but with um, uh, representing uh, young people through SSDP, you got the opportunity to go to the UN, right? And mm-hmm. um, I mean, that's an amazing opportunity um but you know what tell us a little bit about sort of what it's like to kind of enter that kind of very formal space that the UN is as a young person and and what did you kind of take away from that experience do you think Mm -hmm. well if I could sum up everything about being a young person at the UN in one word, it, it would probably be frustrating um, on a lot of different <laughs> angles. <laughs> um, but, you know, not, it's, it's not all frustrating, to be sure, and I'll talk about that. But, you know, when I first came into doing the UN stuff, uh, you know, again, I was an international relations major in college. I was really into UN process. I did a model UN when I was in high school. I was very into the UN as a concept, and I was very, I guess – 
you know, wide-eyed about the whole notion that I was going to be able to go to the UN and talk about this advocacy that I really liked. And um, so I remember I went to my first uh, CND, Commissioner on Narcotic Drugs, in 2016, the one before the UNGAS, and I was super excited. I was like telling uh, people that I was going with, like, yeah, we're going to, you know, get a room full of people at our side event and we're going to speak truth to power. It's going to be great. And we're going to make interventions on the floor. Um, and within the first, I think, like couple hours of being there, you you realize that what it is and that really what you're there to do is watch other people make pre-made statements and mm-hmm. wait for them to have closed door meetings to tell you what they decided. Um, <laughs> that, that's really what it was. Um, and, and I realized that after the first couple hours the first day because I, I learned from someone that, oh, they've already drafted the outcome document for CND and the entire week is just drafting and delivering on it. And I was like, how can they have the outcome? It didn't happen yet. So, yeah, it really was. It really was. Um, so, you know, that's obviously something that, that everyone involved with civil society experience at the UN. And, and there's certainly a big problem, especially in the drug policy space and the harm reduction space of uh, really lack of true um, uh, opportunity, I think, for civil society to engage in a lot of cases too. I think it's a lot better now than it was certainly 10 years ago, to be sure. Um, but it, it is still very frustrating. But as a young person in particular, there's another level of frustrations there too, because so much of what you experience is tokenization as a young person. Your, your voice is tokenized, your presence there is tokenized. And what I mean by that is the the UN often, when I say the UN, really the global drug control regime, countries involved with prohibition, everything like that, always cite the health and protection of youth as justification for the harshest drug policies. We need to save the youth, save the future generation, (laughs) save the children. (laughs) Right, right, right. And so here we are, we're we're college-age students, we're young people, we are like the prime age that the UN is talking about as the people who are going to take on the world in the future. And we're saying, no, we think we should legalize all drugs and prioritize harm reduction and prioritize a human rights approach. And we weren't given space to really say any of that. Um, and what we were given were a lot of opportunities to you know, be seen, but really just not necessarily heard. Um, we were, got to do a side event, but they gave us a time when no one was going to come. Um, they, we were able to do an intervention, but there were like maybe five country delegations still sitting around the room. Um, and, and so you really felt that you were there to, to kind of almost be like the – the young people getting involved for the photo op, if you know what I mean. Like, you know, you can kind of point that to youth involvement. Um, that's very frustrating. Um, and it's very frustrating, you know, as well, um, because there are a lot of young people who are who do come to the UN to these forums, but they're brought to kind of reiterate, uh, reiterate the prohibitionist stance. Um, like the UNODC has this thing called the Youth Forum, where they invite young people from all over the world to basically give a five-minute speech about you know, basically thanking the UN for protecting them from drugs. And <laughs> <laughs> it's ridiculous. And we tried to get involved in that forum and they said, no, you had to be invited. <laughs> um, so in fact, uh, Penny Hill, who you, you guys might know from SSDP Australia, once tried to just walk into their meeting during the 2016 CND, just walk in saying, hey, I'm with SSDP, I'm youth, can I join? And they just, you know, kicked her out. <laughs> so, um, <laughs> yep. um, so 
One quick story I would really love to share to, to end up this question, I think really kind of sums up the entire UN experience. That ends on an optimistic note, um, because I, I will say doing this work has been incredibly um, uplifting for me personally. And I think for a lot of people involved in this movement too, because through all the BS you deal with at the UN itself, engaging with other advocates and civil society all over the world is such an enriching experience, especially in the context of the work that we're doing, where we so often experience stigmatization. It can often feel that we're very alone in what we're doing. Yeah. People, family members, friends are always kind of saying, well, why are you doing the drug stuff? Why don't you what do something else? What is it that else? you do and, anyway, really? Right, right, exactly, exactly. Right, it's very reaffirming um, to to be with other people who experience the same thing and to talk about that. And there was an amazing thing that happened in the 2018 CND where we had a coalition of young people from different youth-based organizations um, supporting the legalization of drugs and full spectrum harm reduction. And we were trying to have a meeting um, and we didn't have money to like book a room or anything like that because no one really, there's not a lot of funding available for specifically youth led programming in a lot of cases. Um, so we decided we would have a meeting in the bar at the UN. So about you know 20 of us went up there to have a drink and have this meeting, and it was way too loud. We, we could not have had that meeting in the bar. So we figured, okay, well, we'll look for an empty room. We would find an empty room by the bar. We started to have our meeting in there. We get kicked out of there in like five minutes. We say they have to, we have to give them 200 euros to use the room um, for an hour if we want to use it. Um, it was an empty room. Like there was nothing in there. We were even just sitting on the floor. Um, and so... After that, we went out and just had a meeting in the hallway. And I remember sitting around there and we had a, a, one of the most productive meetings I've had in, in youth drug policy organizing. It, it was like we were firing all senators because I think that one, we were frustrated that mm-hmm. we were relegated to the hallway here. But yeah. there was this resilience to that of like, well, hey, well, in spite of the fact that we don't even have enough funding to get a room, in spite of the fact that we're getting kicked out of empty rooms to have our meetings, in spite of the fact that we feel that there's no space for us here or to be seen, here we are at the UN making plans to represent the youth um, anti-prohibition voice globally. And it was a very empowering moment that I think really exemplified that even though things are frustrating, um, you, you, there's still a lot of things that I gain and I think we gain from doing this work. Yeah. And you can I think you've just given us the, um, the title of the episode, Relegated <laughs> to the Hallway. <laughs> <laughs> Love it. <laughs> and, and what power can come from that hallway? <laughs> <laughs> hallway advocacy. <laughs> yeah. So we, we wanted to ask you about some research you've done as well on drug prohibition and the contribution of that to racial discrimination in policing, which is and, and the rise of authoritarianism, which is a huge frontline issue in the US and here mm-hmm. around Black Lives Matter protests. Can you tell us about that research? Um, when, why you did it, what you found? Give us, give us the lowdown. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. So this was research I did as part of my master's thesis at Central European University in Budapest. Um, I was in the uh, Master's for Human Rights program. Um, and I knew going into it, I wanted to write about something that was related to drug policy or harm reduction, something in this space. Um, that much I knew going in. Um, exactly what I wanted to focus on what was very difficult. And we weren't given a whole lot of time at first. I remember we had to submit our proposals within the first like month and a half of the program. Um, right. And so I was 
kind of unsure about what exactly I wanted to do. I was maybe going to write about the death penalty, maybe extrajudicial killings. And, you know, it's a human rights program. So it really had to be from a very legal human rights based framework. Mm. Um, And so the more I thought about it, the more I I kind of thought about that. I I really want to write about what I think um, is recognizing the real problem with a lot of drug policies and the lack of action on them. And that is that really when you look around uh, the recent history of the world, dating back to the 17th century um, Spanish-American colonies, the criminalization of drugs has been used as a mechanism of sanctioned violence again and again and again, primarily against minority communities um, Mm. and communities which are generally on the margins of society. Um, And so I really wanted to kind of look into whether or not the UN mechanisms for racial discrimination and the UN uh, mechanisms for monitoring drug policy evaluations were, one, addressing the problem that drug policies themselves are rooted in racial discrimination, and two, what remedies do they have to address this problem in terms of recommendations to give the states if it is recognized? Um, and you know what I what I basically found is you know first for this research I had to you know pick a couple countries and and prove what I was saying that drug policies are rooted in racial discrimination. Mm-hmm. So I researched the U.S., the U.K., and Brazil, and really you know obviously the U.S. It's very obvious in, in terms of yeah. the first drug mm-hmm. laws that were passed were specifically. Target at Chinese immigrants um, who were yeah. smoking opium, then you know, yeah. you move on to cocaine, and yeah. right, right, that that's very well known. Um, UK, um, you know, it's a, it was a bit different um, in terms of how drug policies really came about. There was a bit more of a health fo- focus at first, but nevertheless, prohibition was um, instituted, and nevertheless, the people who really felt the brunt of those policies of the criminalization were. Um, black and other minority populations in the UK. Um, and it was obviously the same case in Brazil as well, which Brazil was a very interesting country to study with this um, too, because among all those three countries, there is, you could say, somewhat of a legitimate concern with the um, uh, with the narcos and just the um, violence that follows a lot of drug trafficking. And so what I really kind of wrote about and researched about is how, you know, this violence isn't a product of drug use itself, certainly not. This violence is in and of itself an extension of drug criminalization. And that in Brazil in particular, it's very similar to the US and that the criminalization of drugs has been selectively enforced mm-hmm. against certain populations of people um, certain drugs are criminalized over others, certain methods yeah. of consumption are criminalized over others. You know, it, it's very, very targeted at certain groups of people, Afro-Brazilians, um, other people in uh, indigenous populations. Um, and so that was the first part of what I we were researched, just kind of the origins of these policies and how they have carried forward racial discrimination. Um, and, and, you know, when, and what I argued in a very intentional way in a lot of cases. Um, I, I think that in the US, especially the the shift towards drug policy as a social issue away from a issue around racial um, uh, discrimination came around the Nixon administration when we started talking about it as a national security threat, um, mm-hmm. started talking about it as um, uh, public enemy number one. We kind of forgot that these policies were passed with the actual intention of discriminating and legally enforcing state violence against um, minority communities. So what I wanted to examine was 
um, you know, whether UN reviews of drug policies in the context of reviewing racial discrimination in countries was monitoring this and was seeing this um, beyond just that drug policies are disproportionately um, uh, enforced, but that the policies themselves are rooted in an idea of exclusion. Um, mm-hmm and violence. Um, mm-hmm. And so what I, you know, ultimately found, um, and it probably is not too much of a surprise, but that yes, there is an inadequate recognition of this real problem that mm-hmm. really far and wide way, when you look at the um, Committee for the Elimination of Racial Discrimination, we look at their state reports, we look at the Special Rapporteur for the Elimination of Racism and Xenophobia, um, you see that they, they will recognize that there is certainly a discretion in the way that drug policies are enforced and the impacts they have on uh, many minority communities, but there is not that recognition that drug prohibition itself is the core problem that needs to change. And that if you're going to, right. And, and, you know, and if you're going to provide true restitution for the communities that have really been harmed by the war on drugs, then you absolutely have to include decriminalization, legalization as part of that as well. Otherwise, I, I don't think you can provide true restitution for um, the centuries and centuries of prohibition that have harmed communities. So, yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, so yeah. So I found that there was a very obvious gap in the recognition of that problem. Um, and in terms of whether or not there were instruments to address it, that was interesting thing because I, I found that the UN mechanisms very much did have instruments to address these kind of issues if they identified them. Um, yeah. <laughs> I, when I say you know, when I say address them. Right, right. Um, when I say address them, I, I obviously mean, you know, the countries have to actually change the policies, but the UN can be making recommendations that they are making right now. Um, yeah. Even if it's just for countries to conduct their own reviews of um, the impacts of drug policies and racial discrimination, um, you know, even that element is just missing. So it was, you know, it was research that was very technical and very got into the nitty gritty. And it was very, mm. you know, reading a lot of cases and maybe a bit more, you know, specific than I set out to do, but I'm glad I did it because I think it really helped one, me understand a lot more about um, what the criminalization of drugs is as part of the larger um, Mm -hmm. movement for global liberation from colonialism, from imperialism, you know, things like that. Um, But but also I think, you know, what to expect and, and how to really engage in advocacy at the UN around this issue, knowing where the gaps in response were. Mm. Restitution wow. is a really interesting idea. I hadn't really thought about that before. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, you, you don't know, think that discussed, yeah. Yeah, mm. yeah, a bit of a practical example or, or thoughts about how that might work. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so I think a big part of restitution is obviously just diverting, I mean, it's diverting funding towards communities. It's diverting funding right. towards communities which um, have either had funding withheld because of criminalization or just have been decimated by the effects of criminalization. Um, so in the U.S. context, um, a lot of what that looks like, uh, you know, we're having this national dialogue right now about defunding the police and yeah. Yeah. Um, decreasing funding from police forces into social services. Um, um, and so where I think restitution falls into play with that is money that we are not spending on law enforcement should certainly be going to public health and social services, but yeah. mm-hmm. should also be going towards um, education in communities harmed by mm-hmm. drug prohibition. It could be go to building infrastructure in communities. Um, mm-hmm. It could be go towards employment opportunities, um, bringing yeah. jobs, um, mm-hmm. you know, it really addressing socioeconomic human rights mm-hmm. concerns among people who have 
uh, been harmed, you know, directly and indirectly by the prohibition yeah. of drugs. Um, I think a lot so of people hear restitution that, oh yeah, go ahead. So I was just going to yeah. say, similar to justice reinvestment yeah, I was with, thinking with the criminal yes. justice system and mm. reinvesting monies that would otherwise go on to housing often, you know, mm. uh, black and minority populations back to the communities from which mm. most of the um, the incarcerated people come from mm. with all those mm-hmm. social programs and housing yeah. and infrastructure yeah. and, and all yeah. the rest. Yeah. Similar, yes. similar idea there, do you think? Absolutely similar idea. Yeah, I, I think it's pretty much the same thing. I, I think a lot of people hear restitution and they think like money, um, they think a specific money payment to people. And yeah. maybe in some cases that, that would be applicable, certainly, you know, especially for formerly incarcerated people, I yeah. think, you know, cutting a check to people as they get out of prison is a, is a good idea. Um, but I think overall, restitution is exactly what you, what you just described. It, it's reinvesting in communities and it's doing so in a way that recognizes that we need to do this um, before we, well, I mean, we just need to do this period, that this needs to be, this is a part of um, ending the war on drugs, that we're not really done ending the war on drugs until this yeah. Um, this rebuilding part is complete. Mm. And too often that- it just focuses in, doesn't it, on the sort of need to, say, change the laws or, you know, right. yeah. decrim type thing, but this is sort of that broader social picture. Mm. Sorry, right. Sorry, just to, to harp on it for a little bit longer, but, you know, when we were talking about cannabis law reform previously, you know, I have heard issues in, in settings where cannabis has become decriminalised, that um, people with records have had, criminal records have had those expunged um, when that change of law happens. Yeah. But you know, does that really um, take account of the lost opportunities they may have had because of that criminal record of not being able to go into yeah. certain professions or travel or whatever else? Yeah. yeah, it's a great point, and and you know I'll, I'll just say too on, on this in the U.S. it's a it's a huge problem, especially in the cannabis industry, because you have people in dispensaries um, that won't hire formerly incarcerated people that that won't hire people that uh, are coming out of prison, and, and to me that's 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 very that's very angry, or it, it makes me very angry um, yeah. because. So much. This this industry to me is not. We did not legalize marijuana to create this industry. That's not why we legalize marijuana. This industry is a byproduct of legalizing marijuana. And for this industry to exclude the people um, who should be, you know, receiving restitution now that we are legalizing or decriminalizing it or just legalizing it for medical, is, is so it makes me so frustrated and, and so angry because I, I think it's. It's not really addressing the harms that we set out to address. Um, and it shows that there's a lot of work to do, even in a world where we do decriminalize drugs. Yeah, absolutely. So, Jake, um, just to sort of, you know, heading toward the end of our conversation now, but you're now at Input and um, part of the staff team there. Just, you know, what, what attracted you to Input as a, as a young, you know, drug policy activist? Why, did, why Input? Yeah. Absolutely. Um, yeah, so I've no input or about input for a lot of years now, dating back to when I first started to get involved with SSDP. Um, even though I was in college, I remember looking up things with about input on the internet. And um, I really didn't start becoming super aware of input until I met Judy, um, actually before she was executive director of input, Judy Chang. Um, 
I met her at a Canadian Students for Central Drug Policy conference in 2015, back when uh, she was still with SSTP UK. Mm-hmm. Um, and so we met then, uh, we, we hung out in Toronto together, and um, I also met Bruno Gonzalez, who's the current chair of Input there as well. Um, and so, you know, I met all these people, I kept working with them throughout UNGAS and CND, um, and, you know, obviously Judy went on to become ED of Input shortly afterwards. Um, and uh, yeah, I, I guess it was around maybe, um, yeah, about a year ago now, I had um, finished grad school. Um, I had left my job with SSDP about a year earlier um, after I had finished grad school. Um, I was just ready to move on from that. And, you know, I'm not, I can't consider myself a young person forever, I guess. Um, <laughs> as, much as, I, as much as I would love to, <laughs> you know, <laughs> can fudge a little bit. But, <laughs> um, and I really wanted to remain in the international drug policy space for all the reasons I was saying earlier, just the, the feeling of community here, the, the work feeling very powerful and impactful. Um, I wanted to stay doing this, um, but I, I wanted to do so in a way that I, I felt that I was, you know, really um, kind of what we we're just talking about with restitution. I was really kind of contributing to the movement in a, in a positive way and not just, you know, um, joining an organization that does a lot of virtue signaling, so to speak, because there are plenty of organizations, especially in the U.S., who you know talk a lot about harm reduction and talk a lot about decrim, but one, they're not um, peer-led. They're not people who use drugs aren't necessarily very involved in these organizations, and two, in terms of what they're doing, it's really not a lot. Um, so it was important for me, I guess, you know, to find a space where I felt like I was doing something real. It was also important to me at the time to find a job um, and, and start making money again after grad school, you know, being unemployed living at my mom's house. Um, and so um, and so I, you know, kind of on, on a whim, I reached out to a lot of people. I reached out to Judy and I said that, you know, I, I've always really enjoyed working with people at Input. Um, People on input when I would go to CND were always some of the best speakers and were always some of the most inspiring speakers um, because they really had that, you know, obviously the lived experience. Um, And, you know, I had met input people and I felt a lot of camaraderie with them too, as, you know, a a young person who uses drugs and someone who, um, uh, you know, kind of shares a lot in in what led them to advocacy as well. So um, long story short, me and Judy talked for a little bit and I, um, I joined the secretariat uh, first as the comms officer and did that part-time for a little bit. And, um, since CND, I've been lucky to be uh, full-time as the policy and comms officer. Um, and, uh, you know, it's, it's been really fantastic to be with input. I, I really can't say enough for how amazing this community is, um, in, in this network, um, being able to, like I said before, with, with the UN stuff, just organize and meet people all over the world, um, that, have a like-minded background and, um, and, and, you know, hopefully are just empathetic people that want to help others. Um, it's just so, so nice to be around, uh, especially in, you know, this crazy year that we're in, in 2020. Um, I I think that, you know, it feels even more real to be a part of that right now. Um, so yeah, so, so input, I I feel is just, um, the fact that it's peer led, the fact that it's truly community driven is, um, it shouldn't be that rare, but but it is right now, and, and I think that I, I feel so lucky just to be a part of it um, and, and to play a role in it. That's nice. It is very enriching. I I, I agree with you. 
So um, our, our final uh, sort of question, it kind of leads on from that a little bit. I yeah. mean, you know, summing up the, our whole conversation here a bit, you know, it is, I think, pretty true to say that drug policy reform can be incredibly frustrating as well as very rewarding to work in. And part of that is because change can seem, you know, quite to move at quite a glacial sort of pace a lot of the time. Um, so with that said... You know, where do you get your inspiration, Jake? You know, that sense of hope and, you know, what gets you up in the morning and keeps you in the struggle, so to speak? You've kind of touched on that a bit, but maybe we could sort of finish off with some thoughts on that. Maybe it's those awesome breakfasts you make. <laughs> <laughs> that, that is certainly, in terms of what gets me out of bed in the morning, it's making breakfast, but <laughs> um, what, what keeps me out of bed. Um, <laughs> yeah, that's right. So you don't go back. <laughs> right, <laughs> right, right. Um, but yeah, no, I, I think like I like I said before, and I alluded to. I think a big thing is just the community that keeps me wanting to be involved with this. Um, it, you know, you said it, it could be incredibly frustrating. Burnout is very easy, um, I think, to to come across, especially right now where we're also disconnected. Like I said, a part of really what I, I love about this work so much is the connection with other people too. So, um, and yeah, change could be slow. So, you know, you do get into these ruts sometimes where you feel like, you know, nothing's happening. What are we really doing here? Is, is everything hopeless? But at the same time, I, it, for, for as much as that happens, um, I, I get so much enthusiasm and hope just from this community that we're involved in, um, the global community of people who use drugs, the global community of people involved in drug policy advocacy, even beyond input as well. Um, going back to the people I've worked with the SSDP and the youth movements and um, people um, all over the world doing harm reduction, people that are doing even adjacent forms of advocacy too, things like climate change and talking about the impacts of the war on drugs on the environment, um, people working on women and genders issues um, and linking that back to drug criminalization too. I see how intersectional this movement is and, and it really kind of shows you how, you know, even if it feels like you're not doing anything, uh, you're not achieving anything right now, just by making these links and reminding ourselves why we're doing this and embracing the community aspect of this is, I, I think, really uplifting. Um, but, but I think the biggest thing that really um, keeps me um, driven to this and not just driven to um, drug user advocacy, but driven to, I think, social justice as a whole and to advocacy um, is that I really um, see this embodiment of a value called tikkun olam um, that I grew up with. Um, it's a Jewish value that I've, you know, that basically means to repair the world. Um, I grew up Jewish and, you know, during my bar mitzvah, I, uh, my part of my Torah portion, I uh, wrote my sermon about this whole notion of tikkun olam and, you know, helping others and committing ourselves to repairing the world and no matter what way we can. Um, and it's sort of what I've always felt personally driven towards as sort of a North Star, um, you know, align your life in a position where you can be constantly helping others to the best of your capacity. And what I think keeps me a part of this movement more than anything else is because I feel all the all other people involved have the same goal. And mm -hmm. it's not that goal is not, you know, simply, you know, decriminalize drugs. That goal isn't even um, human rights in some capacities, too. It's just to help repair the world, to help other people, even if you don't know them, even if you don't 
um, like them, even if they are completely different from you. Um, it's just a drive to help other people. Um, and, you know, I, I have that drive in me and, and I feel that this movement is filled with other people that have that same drive. And I think that's what kind of keeps me up and keeps me going is, is feeling very excited to be around other people like that. Wow. That's oh, amazing. Yeah. <laughs> More power oh. to your elbow, Jake, I reckon. Yeah, I wasn't too snappy. <laughs> really great. Nice yeah. way to finish, I think. Yeah, um, very inspiring and powerful. Absolutely. So, um, yeah, you know, good feels here um, all round. And, uh, look, thank you so much, Jake, for your time. You know, um, it is always a bit tricky you know, getting the time zones <laughs> happening and it's night for you yeah. and morning for us and all that. Yeah. But um, it's really been a real privilege to talk to you and um, very inspiring. And it really gives uh, me as a as an oldie in the drug users movement such incredible <laughs> inspiration and, and hope for the future to have people like yourself involved um, and getting involved uh, increasingly. So it's just it's just great. Yeah, so thank Aww. you. Thank you so much. It was it was great being here. Yeah, love talking to you both, and love talking about all this stuff. So, thank you for uh, thank you for having me. That's no worries. Okay, Carla. Well, I guess we uh, we done for today. We'll see everyone next time on another yep. episode. And bye for now. See you later. For more information about this podcast, our guests, and upcoming episodes, head to httpcsrh.arts.unsw.edu.au.